Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nowhere Podcast. Technology is constantly running in the background of our lives, yet for most of us, it's invisible. On Nowhere, we explore the intended and unintended influences that geospatial technology has on the real world. These are the stories of how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. I'm Jonathan Neufeld, your host, and today my guest is Danica Kelly, co-founder of My Normative. Hi, Danica. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm so glad to talk to you. I'm so honored that you've decided to talk to me about female health stuff. So you're one of the founders of My Normative. Tell me about your background and how you ended up founding a fitness app. Ooh, yeah. I mean, I'll affect you right away on whether or not it's a fitness app. I would say it's a health and wellness app. But yeah, so my background and my co-founder's background, to be fair, the fitness is fair. We were both jocks to start, high-performance athletes, and tried to use software to track our health and wellness and couldn't use existing softwares on the market because they didn't account for the fact that we were female, which is mind-boggling. And so needless to say, both of us went into female health studies. I specifically look at things from a sociocultural and behavioral sort of aspect, so very on the qualitative side. And my co-founder looks at things from like the epidemiology, she's an epidemiological scholar, big data cohorts, that's her jam. Even though we were in disparate fields, neither of us could find anything on female health data, even at the highest level of security clearance with like Canada Health stats. And and so we were like, okay, if this data set doesn't exist and if it's not accurate and if it's not representative, someone's going to have to do something about it. So we spent about a year looking for someone who might be doing something about it, couldn't find it on a commercial scale. And uh, eventually... I managed to lovingly bully Renee into starting a company with me. <laughs> Excellent. And and here you are. And, and my normative has, has done really well lately. And I know you're gaining a lot of ground and we'll, we'll talk about that further down. But I want to set the stage with health and wellness tracking, as, as we put it, including fitness yes. and people's desire for insight, right? There seems yeah. to be a big move in the industry for more data, more tracking, more knowledge. And what are you seeing there as an industry? Ooh, that is a really good question. That wasn't in the notes, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think there are a few things. So I think the first and foremost, which is really exciting and, and salient for us, is people have started to recognize uh, on a, a layperson level and every person level that female bodies are not just scaled down male bodies. And people are asking for their medicine, their programming, their training, their their performance metrics to be adjusted according to that scale, right? There's tons of stuff out there. I, like, I don't know if you use TikTok, Jonathan, but like my... I do not. Really? Oh, no. Do you do the... I'm old. I don't use TikTok. <laughs> There's some really nerdy geomatic stuff on TikTok. So I... If you use it long enough, it will tell you a lot about yourself. This is not a plug for TikTok, but fascinating cultural saliency. Like my For You page is full of people saying, this is what's available on the market. Here's how you can like paper edit that to account for your own individual results. And so I think uh, Femtech as a marketplace has grown and ballooned exponentially. And, And both on the consumer side and also on the investor and business side, I think we're ready to start making some changes around female inclusion and providing insights that are are real and measurable and re- like, I want to say relative, but like actualized. So even at the highest level of sport and all of the fitness tracking and data gathering that happens right now, it's all done based on a male body. There's no tracking or insights being created, even at the, the high competitive levels using female bodies. That's right. So on like a consumer grade technology level, that is correct. 
So there are, are research projects that are running in, in collaboration with like big universities where people are designing things kind of manually through a lab to do that sort of tracking. And you do something like, I know that for a while, I think it was the British women's cycling team. They were doing like wet lab interventions on a regular basis to identify where they are hormonally and adapt mm-hmm. training around that. But on like a hardware, like a tracking piece that that's consumer grade, absolutely nothing. So your Apple Watch or your Garmin or what have you, your Fitbit, it doesn't have a little button inside to say, I'm female, I'm male, and then create insights you know, spe- specified to that body type. It has a button for that. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Not a useful button then. It's, I would say there are changes happening in the right direction, right? You can now, with a Garmin or an Apple Health product, you can voluntarily divulge your menstrual cycle. You can tell it. It doesn't adapt that for how it reads you. Interesting. And, and you kind of uh, referenced it once already, but l- let's talk about this concept of the normative man. So what is the normative man and, and how has that played a role in our society so far? Yeah. Okay. So the, the reference man is interesting thing. So from my understanding, it was actually originally around how much exposure a male person could handle before they'd like get cancer and die. And we were like, the radiation oh. exposure. Yeah. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. So we took that and we were like, this average, we should apply it to everything. So it's like an 18 to 23 year old depends on, on which reference man you look at to some extent. But my 18 to 23 year old white male, approximately 70 kilograms is kind of what everything is scaled off of. So you're like, Oh no, if you're kind of like, Oh, but like I'm 80 and I get insights you do, but they are a scaled version of what would have happened if you were an 18 to 23-year-old white male who's 70 kilograms. And so that body type, that reference man, is being used for everything from crash test dummies, seat belts, fitness tracking, you know, probably medication. Oncology. That, that's the reference for everything. Yeah, it's a huge issue. Interesting. And so then, I mean, that wouldn't take into a lot of account a lot of unique physiological factors, you know, especially with, with women. Yeah, absolutely. I think the crash test dummy example one is great. And I mean, I haven't personally pitched like an insurance company yet. But when you think about seatbelts and like even my baby has a car seat that's like, this is side impact tested. And I'm like, did you really test it on like the, I don't even, the squishiness of babies? Like, did did you actually (laughs) think that? Or did you just scale a fully grown man down and go, this is good enough? Right. I sure hope they did because babies are very squishy compared to full grown men. (laughs) Right. And so when you look at like um, motor vehicle accidents are a great one. If you look at who gets into accidents, but then you look at like health outcomes, when people get into accidents, the health outcomes for female bodies are far more severe men and women get into accidents at the same rate, but you're saying the outcomes for the female bodies are much worse. Yeah. And that's because of the design? Because of the design. Interesting. Right? Interesting. So with my normative, then, you're working to build female body inclusion in health tracking. Yes. Excellent. And I think, I mean, it's 2022. It seems like this should be done, but I'm, I'm glad you're breaking that barrier and building something in this. I mean, I spent a year going, someone else should have done this and doing the research to see who else might have done it. (laughs) To be very fair, like researchers are working on this. This is very much a thing that is happening in the field, but everyone has, you kind of have to specialize, right? And so there's no, there's no way to do a study that's like general population. How do we track this? Because it's just too big of a nut to, to crack to a certain point. And so the only way to really get there is to be 
sector agnostic and be willing to mm. search anyone and everyone at the same time. And so that's shifted our platform quite a bit so that we've actually become a really salient tool for researchers. And that's helping kind of distribute the types of bias we have because we're able to have lots of different participants and different kind of subsections of the population interacting with the software all at once. And then that interaction with researchers, it sounds like a positive cycle, right? So the more people use your system, the more research can happen and the more closely you can get towards a commercially viable and commercially broadly applicable application. Exactly. And and the big one that we have found is is, is valuable and interesting um, is the big barrier that we hear is like it's super expensive to afford female persons, right? If you think about all of the wet lab work that needs to be done to do hormone serialization, if you can decrease that cost for people, that is great. Whether you're an academic or you run a car manufacturing company, you just want to run some diagnostics, right? If you don't have to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars running hormone tests when you're a car company, <laughs> right. This that, that's lot, not their jam. Yeah. <laughs> makes a lot more sense, right? You're not like going to your bosses and being like, I think I need blood panels. <laughs> and, and so that's a big gap that we're able to cover to make, like you said, a, a commercially viable method for, for adapting tech for this. And so on this show, we like to talk about the unexpected ways in which geospatial affects our lives. And I know that you've uncovered some interesting insights and interesting data by combining health insight or health tracking and location information. So so what have you been able to uncover by pairing people's, you know, self-reported health information along with their location? Yeah. So you and I talked about this a little bit before, but there's all sorts of things. So I would describe myself as a pillow fort builder immediately pre and first day of my period of my menstrual cycle. And I would tell you, if you asked me, that I do not move when I get my period. Cozy down, hang out. Yeah. <laughs> the last the day before I got my period, last cycle, I had a mental breakdown because popcorn is delicious. Like I don't Robin hysterically on the couch for an hour. I was I'm not moving from here eating popcorn. Like I would say I do not move. For sure. Turns out that's not true. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So yes, I have no no desire to work out kind of immediately preceding the flip in menstrual cycle from mm -hmm. the end of one to the beginning of the other, which is when you get your period. However, nature is amazing. And apparently we do tons of ambient movement, just like self-soothing and moving around right when we get our period. Okay, sorry. And what is ambient movement? That would just be like daily movement that we wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily track. Like, I'm not going to go like, oh, I walked to the fridge and back. Right. I, I went out for a stroll. I, I did some gardening. Yeah. Th those sorts of things that are like life integrated rather than yes. a specific time set aside for it. Yes. Yeah. That's a great explanation of ambient moving. And so with ambient movement, we move a ton right at the onset. And I think in part, so inflammation levels increase. So if we're and our backs can get tighter, hips can get tighter. People get all sorts of aches and pains going into their period. Um, and so... People actually, you might think you're just walking to the fridge because you've got the snacks. Sure. But also, you're doing it more frequently, hypothetically, as an act of kind of mitigating pain. And so, yes, geospatial information that we might get might indicate an absolute decrease in high-intensity activities. Mm -hmm. But the low-intensity stuff actually peaks. Interesting. And you're able to, to detect that using, you know, GPS watches or people's just move, movement data. Yeah, yeah. We don't have any intellectual property specifically pertaining to, like, 
accelerometers or anything like that. Right. So we're just able to pull what's on your watch and what's in your phone and then take a look at that. Interesting. And so so that ties into the ambient movement piece. I'm curious how how female performance changes and what you've been able to measure using location data. Yeah, so that's a really great question. And then if you drop back to your earlier one, which is, is correlating it with that self-report and that perception of self, I think Renee used a really funny example in one of our interviews with you for a different organization around burritos. But I'm going to try and yeah. use a different example. When we look at, so say someone runs the same route pretty habitually, mm-hmm. week over week to some extent. We can look at the normal stuff. We can look at how far you ran, how frequently you ran, the time you spent running that distance, the speed you ran that distance. We can look at all those types of variables. And then we can correlate that to where you are in your menstrual cycle. And we can pull in an extra really valuable piece of information, a couple of them, around motivation, Mm -hmm. perceived readiness for physical activity. Like I I didn't want to go out, but I did, or I was really ready to go out. Yeah. Yeah. And then we can also do rate of perceived exertion. How hard did you think that was? Mm. And so if we pull that self-report and combine it with the information that we have on like the habitual running route or the hiking route or the walking route or the laps around the track or, or the biking that you do, we can start to see that maybe today was harder or maybe today was easier or maybe your heart rate on this piece versus on that piece, you perceived it as harder. Your heart rate actually said you were doing fine. And we can start to put all these different pieces together and start to think about what energy system you might have been using to have that result, right? Oh, interesting. Okay. How your body clears lactic acid, which is correlated to where you are in your menstrual cycle. And so we can start to pull all of these different things together and go, you know, you ran really well today. You actually ran a little bit further. You ran a little bit more. You self-reported that it was a little bit on the easier side. It was specifically an endurance activity. So it was a longer bike ride or a longer run or a longer swim. And your heart rate can kind of verify that with us. That probably means, assuming a whole bunch of other stuff, Mm -hmm. that you might be in phase two of your menstrual cycle, which is when you have a higher estrogen, you're going to do better with endurance sport. A lot of people feel more motivated in that point. Mm -hmm. Assuming the relationship between estrogen and dopamine is a good one. And so we can start to go, okay, fascinating. We think you are pre-ovulation over here. And then after ovulation, progesterone kicks in. All of a sudden, your energy usage changes, the systems you use changes. And I don't know if you've ever tried to like go do exercise with someone who's just about to get their period. Physiologically, it is possible for you to do just as well as you did in phase two. But your perception of how much that hurts changes dramatically. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> and so you'll, people will self-report less motivation. They'll say that was way harder to just maintain the same speed I did this last week. And so we can start to pull those correlations. Yeah, so you're able to correlate where users are in their period cycle based on their actual performance data and their self-reported data. Yeah. Without having to do any actual wet lab blood work. Yeah. You're able to get uh, derive strong correlations there. And habitual locations of exercise and how the user engages with them are, are a primary indicator for us. That's amazing. Ah. That's very cool. And, and I would imagine then as you scale that out over the population, you would be able to, of course, get more information and you know, provide better insights, but also then provide female users 
actual appropriate and specific insights to their own specific body and their own specific experience. That's exactly it. So we start with, and it's the, the crux of, I mean, if anyone's built products more effectively, I would love to talk about this, but it takes a couple of cycles for us to really hone in on the variability you're experiencing in your personal experience. So we start with like general insights. You might see this. And then right. as people use the software, where we go, you typically report X or we typically see Y. And we're able to really, like you said, just like dial in those insights to be really specific to an individual's health performance. That's amazing. That, I think that's an excellent insight and an incredible app to be building. Thank you. It's really hard. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, the, the flip side of, of being able to do specific individualized insights, of course, is often privacy concerns. And maybe we don't want to go too deep down the privacy hole, but I know a lot of users are very privacy conscious, especially when it relates to their location information, right? Because mm. knowing where people are, you can learn a lot about them. So I'm curious what my normative is doing to protect the privacy of their users. Oh, I love that. That's such a good question. I actually got this yesterday at a conference I was speaking at as well. Right now, and I'm, I'm happy to kind of wade into a little bit of the mess. So there are some softwares in the U.S. that have gotten panned for leveraging menstrual cycle tracking in an unethical capacity and taking identify, identified data and kind of putting people at risk from a legal and health kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. And so... When Renee and I started my normative, we both came at it from like a researcher specific background, which is very de-identification, anonymous, like driven that way. And so we designed a couple of different places where your data can live and we made it impossible to connect those places. So your personal, like your account information that tells you who you are, et cetera, that all lives on your phone and we don't see it. And so on the inside, yes, so, so we, we see all of the super cool health analytics stuff, but we can't tie that to your identity. Oh, so you've actually put up a, a, a wall in between the individual identity and their health information. Yeah. Oh, excellent. And so if, if you wanted to share your stuff with someone and, 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 you know, like have a run and post about it, somebody couldn't go in and, and try and tie the information on the back end to your personal account. Mm-hmm. So it's very strong privacy protection then to ensure that your users are fully protected all the way around. Yeah, because we had a really, I think, uh, honestly, a tricky problem to solve, which is, and, and I want to be really, really clear about this, we're collecting data because, and, and we don't want to charge you to collect your data because we believe there is a very big health and research problem to solve, which means we need to be able to share that data with other people. But... We don't want people who share data to ever be exposed. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be able to make enough money to continue operating, selling de-identified data with full confidence from our users and the people who contribute to that data set that they are in no way putting themselves at risk doing that. And so we had to design a data lake system that and, and cloud architecture that meant that none of this information ever touched. Right. And from the very beginning, not as a secondhand thought, not as a crisis response, but as a design principle, you've separated that information. Yeah. Excellent. I think that should go a long way to building trust with your users. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. There's so many challenging stories in different areas of the world in which there can be a lot of pressure from, from government organizations and, and special stakeholders to, to have access to information that's identified like that. And making it impossible so that no matter what happens to the company, 
it can't fall mm-hmm. into the wrong hands was, was key from the beginning. Excellent. So, so far, you've made a lot of progress in terms of measuring performance, you know, correlating that to cycles. Where do you go next? What do you see next on the horizon for my normative? Ooh, so, I mean, I don't want to get too sciencey, but so we have a bunch of observational trials. If you're listening to this and you're interested in like contributing to the data pool and you're like, oh, you know, like I've got a funky cycle. Good. That's what's next. <laughs> so if you're like, I am, I'm super active or I'm perimenopausal, I immediately postpartum, my cycle's kind of all over the place. That is the next nut to crack because only 15% of the population has a normal quote unquote menstrual cycle. Hmm. I don't know how that qualifies as normal when it's 15%. Right. <laughs> but that's what it is. And so if you aren't consistently the average of a 20 to 32 day cycle with four to five days of menstruation in there, right now, tech can't capture that period. It's the largest reason why data cohorts get checked out. It's the number one reason why products that are pharmaceutical in nature get pulled off the market. It's because of unexpected interactions with people who don't menstruate as they are supposed to, quote unquote. Sorry, but yet only the average, the normal is only 15% of people? Correct. Wow, that's wild. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so our next objective is is to be able to account for that variability. And so if, if you are a person who has a project or a company who has been impacted by this, or you have a body that has been impacted by this, we're looking for participants, we're looking for partners who, who want to be able to account for the lived reality of the vast majority of female persons, right? That, that sometimes periods are weird. Excellent. Well, tell you what, let's go to that note. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Danica. I I really enjoyed learning about my normative and the ways that you're connecting geospatial data, health data, and all in a privacy-first way. So thank you very much. Thank you. This is the Nowhere Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Neufeld. You can find Nowhere at nowherepodcast.com, on Twitter at nowhere underscore pod, and you can find me at john underscore Neufeld. See you later.